Good morning again. Uh, my name is Matt. Great to be with you this morning. We are in the middle of a series called Prayer and Prophecy, in which we examine different aspects of engaging in life with God. And much of this series has been centered around prayer. Uh, why should we pray through the Psalms? Uh, how does Jesus teach us to pray? How should uh, the reality of the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence among us, how should that affect our prayers uh, and just our lives generally with God? How should we expect to hear from God in real time in what we would call uh, prophetic words? And uh, what does it look like to pray for healing? That's next week. And uh, this week, we are tackling the light and fun topic of praying against the demonic. Welcome to church. Um, so if you were here with us uh, last week, you know that we spent the entire Sunday just talking about the reality of spiritual warfare and, and the reality of, of Satan and evil and demonic beings warring against God's good purposes in the world. And then we contemplated uh, our place in that battle. So if you were not here uh, last week, um, please go back and listen to the podcast because it provides context for everything that we are going to talk about uh, today. But the bulk of our time last week was spent establishing from the scriptures that our adversary or enemy is real, despite our modern skepticism, and, and that uh, we need to be aware of the fact that we live in a world at war. To follow Jesus actually places us on the road to eternal life and simultaneously in the firing line of the enemy. And so along the way, we should expect to meet resistance. And the question we want to answer today is, what do we do about it? I mean, day in and day out, uh, where should we expect resistance? What forms will it, will it take? And how do we effectively confront and overcome that resistance? So that's where we're headed today. And we've uh, designed today to be as practical as possible. We're heading down into the trenches, so to speak, of everyday life. If last week was theory, then this week is practice. If last week was capturing the big picture from kind of a 30,000 foot view, uh, this week we are headed down to the street level where we meet resistance face to face. If last week was about the reality and nature Nature of the enemy, then this week we're, we're talking about how to take a hill, so to speak, for the kingdom of God, to exercise the victory that Jesus has won for us. So that's where we're headed, and if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll get started. And as you're turning there or opening your app or whatever, I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we uh, thank you that you are our victorious king and that the things we're going to talk about today will only propel us into a more compelling view of your kingship. And so, um, Jesus, would you work among your people? Would you open up our hearts and minds to hear words and receive concepts that are absolutely from the scriptures, from your wor worldview? 
from reality as seen from God's perspective, and yet it can feel so far from the way that we view reality. So would you open up our hearts and minds to what it is that you want to speak today, and would we not leave this place uh, unchanged, Jesus? Would you do that in the power of your Spirit, in your name? Amen. From the beginning, the Scriptures prophesied that a single male descendant of Eve would confront and conquer the adversary, or the Satan, as the scriptures would say. And in Matthew 4, right after Jesus' baptism, we get this account. This is Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now, there is a ton wrapped up in this passage that we don't have time to cover. This account is actually layered and rich and beautiful and profound. But for our purposes today, there is just one thing that I want us to note. And that is the method by which Jesus resists and overcomes the adversary. So first off, if you're taking notes, Jesus quotes scripture. Over and over again, the enemy strikes with a series of lies and temptations and challenges to his identity, and Jesus stands on the truth of scripture and quotes it out loud to the enemy. It is written, it is written, it is written. Next, if you're taking notes, Jesus commands Satan to leave, or as it's stated in verse 10, away from me, Satan, and the devil left him. And third, uh, after Satan leaves, Jesus does restorative stuff with God, or what, all, what, what I'm going to call for our purposes, Jesus-y stuff, okay? And in this, uh, can't say that word, in this case, angels came and attended to him, Uh, But the idea is that he was connected with God, that he was being filled by the Spirit, etc., etc. And and this forms the method and the basis for our theology in the way that we are to resist the demonic. And, And here's the deal. Some of us come into conversations like this one with a ton of skepticism. And if we're being honest, I actually wish this weren't true. I actually wish that we didn't have to have conversations like this one. But as we'll see over the course of our next few minutes together, uh, this is real 
And, and therefore, we need to know how to operate and even to flourish in a world at war. And we'll start by unpacking this example uh, that Jesus has given us with a quick word about each step. So, uh, from our perspective, first, when confronted with the demonic, we quote Scripture, which means that we actually have to know Scripture, right? And that doesn't mean you have to memorize entire books of the Bible or whatever to, to be effective at this. Um, really, to get started, you just need like a verse or two or three. But you'll notice in this account that, that the enemy knows Scripture. Isn't that interesting? And, and, and that he's constantly twisting God's words, twisting God's truth, and attempting to pry us away from following after Jesus. Which means within the context of spiritual warfare, we have to know Scripture and be able to stand on the truth of Scripture and even quote it out loud in these moments as the first step toward victory. The Scriptures are the very lens through which we delineate between truth and lies. Between what's true about God and what's not true about God. Between what's true about you and what's not true about you. And so we need to know them and use them in these moments. Uh, next, if you're taking notes, after uh, quoting scripture, we command the demonic to leave. And we see this not just in the temptation of Jesus, which we just read, but all throughout his ministry. Uh, turn with me, if you would, uh, just a couple pages over, if you still have your Bibles open, to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Matthew chapter 8. In all of our recorded confrontations between Jesus and the demonic, um, we actually have zero accounts of him holding long conversations with the demonic or negotiating with them. Uh, but rather, he is simply exercising his authority and commanding them to leave over and over again. This is the account from Matthew 8, verse 28. It says, when he arrived, at he, Jesus, when he arrived at the other side in the region of uh, uh, two demon-possessed men uh, coming from the tombs, met with him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into a her that herd of pigs. He said to them, one word, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Time and time again, Jesus recognizes the demonic commands them to go, and they obey. And notice that at the same time, the demons recognize who Jesus is time and time again. And they know that Jesus has power and authority over them. So he just says, go. Get out. You don't belong here. And in this unusual case, the, the demons go into a herd of pigs 
which in my experience doesn't happen much. Um, from what I can tell, modern demons prefer to inhabit house cats. Um, but, but here's the point. Time and time again, I have stories too, by the way. Uh, time and time again, we're told that Jesus casts out demons in a similar fashion. Always in the same way, okay? In fact, the day before the, the pig incident, we're told this. It says, when evening came, many who were, what? Many who were demon-possessed uh, were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. I want to read that again. Many who were brought to him who were demon-possessed, and he drove out the spirits with a word. And this is speculation, but I'm guessing that word was go. Meaning get out. You have no authority here. You out now. The kingdom of light is now invading the dominion of darkness and you have no choice but to flee. And so not only is Jesus constantly doing this throughout his ministry, but then he commissions his disciples to go out and do the same thing. When Jesus called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons. And then he does the same thing with a group of 72. And it says this, it says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Interesting. And in its clearest expression, we have the Great Commission, which was Jesus' uh, final words, parting words to his disciples, in which he said this, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Me. Therefore, go. Go in my power, in my authority. Go and build the kingdom of God. And so now we live in this new world post-resurrection where we share in Jesus' power and authority. We are now clothed in his victory. And so when we speak these words, we are commanding them in the name of Jesus to leave by his power and authority. And by his power and authority, they have to obey. This doesn't require a seminary degree. In fact, it doesn't even require a, a unique amount of faith. But, but in the simplest way we know how, we're just exercising our shared or derivative authority that's found in Jesus. All authority is in him. All power is in him. It's all in Jesus. But now the scriptures talk about you and Jesus in a way that's very mysterious. In fact, they say that Christ dwells in you and that you are now in Christ. Meaning all of this stuff that's true about his power and authority is now becoming true of, of you. In fact, it says that God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him over all power and dominion. We talked about that last week. But then the scriptures speak mysteriously about us in this way. 
It says God raised us up with Christ and mysteriously seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. And as a result, we approach the demonic from a posture of victory. One of my uh, mentors had a family come to him a a while back and they were having trouble with their four-year-old daughter. Uh, The four-year-old was having night terrors and like seeing these really dark things in her room and she'd kind of wake up screaming and crying in the middle of the night, multiple times a night, the whole nine yards. Just a lot of weird stuff going on. And so the parents, followers of Jesus said, hey, maybe there's actually something demonic behind this. So they, they went to one of my mentors and professors who's also a pastor and he taught them this method that we're learning today. He said, why don't you teach your four-year-old to, to, to do this stuff. And so they did. They, they, they took their four-year-old daughter and they said, hey, honey, the next time that this happens to you, I just want you to say to this thing, say, go away in Jesus' name or, or whatever. And sure enough, uh, two nights later, she wakes up screaming as she often did. But this time the parents wait. They say, wait, let's just, let's just wait. Let's see what happens. And, and after a few moments, she got quiet, and, and then she put herself back to sleep, which, which was new. And so the next morning, they, they approached their four-year-old daughter and say, like, honey, how did, how, did, how did it go last night? She was like, oh, it was great. They were like, like can, you, can you tell us a little, like, what, what happened? Like, what, what was, what went, what? And she said, well, I woke up, and that thing was there in my room again, but I, I told it, I said, my mommy says, you have to go away. And they were like, wait, what? And, and she's like, yeah, and it left. And they're like, wait, so, so we're good now? She's like, yeah, we're good. Never came back again. It, was that a precise theological answer? No. But it didn't matter to God. It, it still worked. I mean, four-year-olds can do this. In fact, our son Moses is, is two now and he's learning to talk and all that and we were driving in the car last week just me and him he's in the back seat of the minivan alone and we're driving along and he said uh, daddy uh, someone's touching me i said what like what is that what do you mean what what do you mean and moses what do you mean by that and he said something's something's touching me right now and here i am studying all of this stuff right and i'm like well m- maybe so I thought, okay, either way, I'll, I'll teach him the method and then he can kind of sort out whatever's going on here, okay? So I said, Moses, if something weird is happening, uh, just say, go away in Jesus' name. And he's just learning how to talk, so he's kind of processing it and thinking about it. And then he says, go away, Jesus. <laughs> I said, no, 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 that's not what we say. We, we say, we say, Jesus says, go away. Go away, Jesus. What? Oh, okay. All right, all right. So I might have been jumping the gun. All right, two years, a little bit young. But definitely by like four or five years old, kids can learn this method and, and find victory in their lives over this stuff. It, it's brilliantly simple. It's just a word. 
a command. Get out. Go. You have no place here. You have no authority here. We belong to Jesus. And finally, uh, after standing on the truth of Scripture uh, and commanding the enemy to leave, we do Jesus-y stuff, which is not a technical term necessarily, uh, but it refers to the fact that as the darkness flees, as strongholds are broken, uh, there's space left in our lives to be filled. And, and we want to fill that void or that new space uh, with light and truth and restorative time with God. So put on your favorite worship song or pray by yourself or with your missional community or whatever um, and, and read the scriptures and do whatever for you is like, this is how I love to connect with God. We do that on uh, the back end. We refocus on Jesus. We thank him for being king and we move on with our lives. So that's the basic framework uh, that we pull from the scriptures, and that's the approach that we take to spiritual warfare. So that's the method. But before we end, I want to share a few thoughts on when and where we might use something like this. So first off, if you're taking notes, the most common form of spiritual warfare, in my opinion, is just lies. The scriptures call Satan the liar who only speaks lies, the accuser and even the tempter. And from the very beginning, he has approached humanity in this way. The war is actually primarily fought and won in your mind because the war is rooted first and foremost in propaganda. And this can show up in a thousand different unique and subtle ways. But when we begin to identify the recurring temptations in our lives and, and, and the condemnation and accusation that you hear in the back of your mind day in and day out, the forces that beckon us away from faith and into cynicism, as we begin to identify those in our lives, we are one step closer to calling them out for what they are. They are poisonous seeds that are planted by the enemy. God doesn't exist. God doesn't love you. God could never love you. You're a mess. You're inadequate. You, you are worthless. It, God doesn't want you. God could never forgive what you've done. You have no purpose. You can't go to him now. It's way too late for that. You have no purpose. You have no value. You have no place here. And, and it goes on and on and on. So wherever we find people who are hopeless and discouraged and cynical and lost and who can't see God for who he really is, then we can see, generally speaking, the work of the enemy that's just rooted in lies. And our greatest weapon against those lies is speaking the truth in love. It, it is the everyday advance of the gospel of Jesus that confronts and tears down the work of the enemy, 
replacing lies with truth and setting people free, reconciling them back to God. The gifts of the Spirit, which we spent the last few weeks talking about, are given by God for the what? Anyone remember? For the building up of the church. And that has a role in this conversation. When we talk about the gift of encouragement, when we talk about receiving prophetic words for people and passing them on, those things speak directly into the lies that we all face and occasionally believe. So we have to hear the voice of God from time to time in real time to actually speak into our deep needs in the lies that have caught us. And so in my experience, most of spiritual warfare, this is my, this is my take, most spiritual warfare is fought on that plane or on that level of experience. But next, if you're taking notes, that there's a less common but not uncommon way uh, of encountering strongholds and, and demonic presence. And, and this captures scenarios in which there is actually a, a felt presence of darkness in your life. And sometimes that's associated with a place, uh, but oftentimes it shows up in the form of compulsive behavior and, and addictions and habitual sin in the life of the disciple that simply won't go away no matter how hard you fight it. It can show up as just this spirit of anxiety and fear. Sometimes it's just a, a voice that continually speaks lies and discouragement in, in such a way that it comes to dominate your thinking. That it's easier to think in lies than it is in truth. Karsha and I had a friend uh, a while back who was constantly wrestling with this inner dialogue of, of suicide. And it was wrapped up in this accusation of, hey, you're, you're worthless and you have no value and, and no purpose. And, and our friend came to us for prayer, but he said, well, it's, it's probably just self-talk, right? And, and oftentimes, we mistakenly just assume that demonic influence is just negative self-talk or, or really negative self-talk. And he began to describe the nature of his inner dialogue that he was wrestling with. And, and it became really obvious to us in the moment that there was a demonic presence and influence in it. And so uh, Karshi and I uh, politely explained to him uh, that, that this wasn't self-talk and that it was our desire to pray against the presence and work of the enemy in his life. And he said, okay, great, let's do that. So, so then we're into that method that we talked about, right? We're... we're listening to the Spirit, allowing Him to guide our prayers, but we're speaking truth over Him and we're quoting Scripture and we're reading the Scriptures. And, th and then eventually, and, and we're thanking Jesus for who He is and the way that, that He loves the person that we're praying for and all of that stuff. And eventually, we turn our attention to the demonic and call it out for what it is and command it to leave. And so as soon as we start doing that, you can see this like visible change in, in, in our friend that we're praying for. It starts to like flare up in him and you can just tell he, he's in the thick of it. And, and these are the moments when you pray with your eyes open, right? You're like, okay, I'm gonna keep praying but I kinda wanna see what's happening here. And so we kept praying, kept doing the same thing. Here's the truth about who he is. Here's the truth about who Jesus is. You need to leave right now. And after a few minutes of doing that, sure enough, it, it left. 
There, there was this shift in, in his posture and his feeling and in, in the atmosphere in the room. And, and he, was, he was free. He, he was liberated from that. He, he walked out no longer hearing that constant voice in his mind. And, and so as we move forward in advancing the kingdom, we should expect to encounter situations like that. Those, those are not uncommon situations. And so most of, uh, of the spiritual warfare, I'm going to argue, is just the lies that we have to wrestle with, that every human being on the planet has to wrestle with more or less every day. That's kind of the bulk of it. But then you have these uh, times and places where there's a more intensified demonic presence and, and you have to pray against it more directly. And they happen every so often. And then you have rarer cases or more extreme cases in which demonic presence is so heavily manifested in the person that you're praying for uh, that it becomes incredibly obvious. And, and we shy away from using the language of possession for a number of reasons. Uh, we prefer to talk about all of this on just a range uh, of kind of demonization. And so what I wanna talk about next is, is the rarer cases at least in America, of, of a heavily demonized person. This is what extreme demonization can look like, okay? So before we planted this church, I was a college pastor, and uh, we had a college group that met on Tuesday nights, a couple hundred people, and uh, once every uh, six months or so, we would have uh, just a night of prayer. And uh, like we do here, about every six months or so, we just come together to just pray for different things. And so on one uh, specific occasion, I had just asked, you know, 150 people to break up into groups of five or six to start praying together. And immediately, uh, a leader, one of our college leaders from one of the groups, came up and said, hey, Matt, can you come to our group? Uh, we need help, like something's wrong. I'm thinking like, okay, we're like 10 seconds in. Did you like spill coffee or something? Like what? <laughs> What are we dealing with? And uh, when I got to the group, um, there in the group was uh, one of our friends. We'll call her Sarah. Uh, and Sarah had been to the college group plenty of times before, a follower of Jesus, getting ready to leave and um, do international missions work. But she was sitting there in her chair in the circle, arms crossed and just kind of disgruntled look on her face, just staring at the ground. He said, hi, Sarah, like, how's it going? Nothing, no response. I said, um, "Oh, okay. Like Sarah, we're we're gonna we're gonna pray now. Do you wanna do you wanna pray with us?" She said, "This is stupid. This is so dumb." I thought, "Okay, that's not something you would you would normally say." Um, and 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 we kept asking a few more questions with just no response arms crossed, disgruntled look, staring at the ground. And finally, uh, after enough time, I just said, hey, hey Sarah, can, can we pray for you? No response. And finally, I just said, Sarah, can you hear us? And Sarah, in a voice that wasn't her own, said, you can't have her. She's ours. <laughs> what? Like, oh no, you didn't. Okay? 
So it became immediately obvious to us that Sarah wasn't just in a bad mood, but that she was heavily demonized. To the point where we were unable to talk to her, and in this bizarre manner, all we could do was talk to this demon through her. And, and, and so it's me and, and two of our college leaders and then one of their friends who they brought along who's just kind of sitting in, in the back of our group. And so the three of us leaders come along Sarah and, and now we're, we're kind of alerted to the situation. We know what's going on. So we come around Sarah and, and roll up our sleeves, so to speak, and, and get to work. And luckily, we'd been taught the method that I'm teaching you today. And so we said, okay, here's the truth about who Sarah is. And we just started praying. We just started praying, reminding Sarah who she is, reminding uh, her who Jesus is, thanking Jesus for the way that he loves her, calling upon Jesus to come and free her from whatever it is that's bound her. And, and we're praying through um, all of this uh, stuff. And um, along the way, as we're like, pray, uh, like quoting scripture and reading from the scriptures and asking for Jesus to set her free, uh, we're then alternating into like commanding this demonic presence to leave. Hey, we command you to leave in the, in the name of Jesus. You have no power here. You have no authority here. She belongs to Jesus. You have to leave. And to my complete surprise, it didn't leave. In, in fact, it was speaking to us and, and challenging our authority and mocking us and actually mocking Jesus and telling us that what we were doing wouldn't work. You guys are dumb. Jesus, Jesus is nothing. Why are you praying right now? Just stop praying, this isn't gonna work. I don't have to leave. You have no authority over me. On and on and on. Some of it in language that I won't repeat. And all the while I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the Bible is real. Like all of it. And when Jesus was casting out demons, he was literally casting out demons. And when it says that the demons spoke to him, they were literally speaking to him. Like this whole thing is just blowing my mind. I'd never seen anything like it. And so this whole thing starts to rise in intensity and our prayers are becoming more passionate. And now Sarah's eyes are like half closed and not like rolled back in her head, but just weird glazed over, and, and there's snot and blood coming out of her nose and running down her face as we're continuing to pray more and more passionately for, for her to be, to, for 45 minutes, we're praying over her as this demonic presence speaks lies and discouragement and mocks us and mocks Jesus and denies that Jesus has any authority in that situation. And we know Jesus is bigger. We know that eventually it has to leave, so we just keep praying. And, and 45 minutes later, the night is kind of coming to a close. And this is in like a dark, crowded, loud room. Nobody else in the room knows what's going on. But it's the end of the night. They're getting ready to start the, the back set of worship and the band gets up to start playing, and right as the first chord is struck, after an hour of passionately praying over her, boom, the demon left. And you could just see the change in her posture. The life came rushing back into her, and she just collapsed into the, the arms of one of the leaders, just crying for joy. And now all of us are like crying for joy, and it's just like, the, and, but the, the entire atmosphere 
just changed. And you could just feel the, the victory of Jesus sweep through that place and she was free. And eventually, after worship was over, I, I, I took our little group um, over to the next room to debrief, which, which we'd actually tried to do like mid-prayer and it just didn't work out. It's a long story. Uh, but I, I took these, this group of five over into the next room to debrief and I said, hey, all right guys, we, we, we need to debrief a little because that's not normal. <laughs> and, and so we're talking and, and we're praying over one another and we're worshiping, we're doing Jesus-y restorative stuff. Uh, and as part of that debrief, we asked Sarah, we, we said, Sarah, uh, what was that experience like for you? As in like, where have you been for, for the last hour? And Sarah said, I was bound and gagged at the edge of a dark field. And the whole field was covered in darkness, but on the other edge of the field, there was light. And, and I could see you guys. You were standing in the light. But, but, I, but I tried to run to you and I couldn't, and I tried to scream, and, and I couldn't. I was just stuck. And, and I was there for a long time, and all of a sudden, I was, I was just back with you guys, worshiping together. Oh, okay, wow. Um, and, and, and then we turned to the other guy in the group, the friend who had been, the only non-leader, the friend who had been invited along, and um, it turns out that he was a self-proclaimed atheist who hadn't been in a church building since he was five years old. That was his first time back. Welcome to church. Like, this isn't, doesn't happen every week. And so, and so we asked him, hey, what are you thinking and feeling right now? And, and he was just sitting there with this stunned look on his face. And I'll never forget what he said. He took a while to think about it. And he said, that, that was real. And we all kind of shook our heads. Yeah, it, it was. But, but you could see the implications just turning in his mind. If all of that was real, then demonic beings are real and Jesus is real, and Jesus just freed her. Like, let that shake up your worldview a little bit. And one of the beautiful things that happens is that after the night was over, this friend, and stayed, this friend stayed afterward for over an hour and talked with me about my journey from atheism to Jesus. And we had this amazing conversation about the reality of the gospel and the reality of Jesus and who he is. And it became this total platform for sharing the gospel with him and helping other people encounter Jesus. And in fact, I think that's what Jesus was doing all the time. He spent half of his time teaching about the inbreaking kingdom of God. And, and he spent the other half of his time demonstrating the inbreaking kingdom of God. And the two just fed off of each other. Each one became a platform for the other. And I can't help but thinking that that's how the gospel was supposed to operate. In fact, we have friends in Uganda 
um, that I got to meet with back in May, uh, fellow church planters. And Uganda sees this stuff all the time, uh, in part because uh, historically the, their tribal cultures were wrapped up in demon worship. It's just a part of, of who they were. And so now there's constant clashes that happen as the gospel advances. And you try and tell them that spiritual warfare isn't real and they will laugh out loud. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, how naive is that? You should go and read your Bible. But they say it kindly, but they're very firm. And what they'll do is that they will go into tribal villages and they will start by confronting and casting out demonic, the demonic in that place. And for an hour, they'll just start calling people together and casting out demons. And at the end of an hour or so, they say, okay, great. Now a whole bunch of you are experiencing freedom. The whole village is here. We have your attention. Let me tell you about Jesus. He, he's the one who's greater than all of these demons that you worship and fear. Let's talk about him. And people are coming to Jesus by the thousands. Why? Because they recognize what my atheist friend recognized that night at college group, what I want our community to recognize before we walk out of these doors, this is real. And if that's the only thing you remember when you walk out of here, then that's a great use of a Sunday morning. If you only remember one thing, remember that. And if you can remember two things, remember this as well. There isn't a demon behind every bush, but there are behind some. And what that means for us is that we need to strike a healthy balance. My guess is that overwhelmingly, we, lead, we lean towards no demons behind any bushes. That's, that's our Western world view. And, and so what happens is we ignore the subject to a fault, but the trouble in now drawing our attention toward this subject is that we have the tendency to swing the other way and, and assume that Satan is behind everything that goes wrong in our lives, every burnt piece of toast, okay? Ah, Satan, you've done it again. Honey, do we have any more bread? A, a demon got that one. Like, ah, pro probably not, okay? So Satan isn't lurking behind every parking ticket and, and every stubbed toe and every bad hair day. But the problem with Christians in America is that we typically sit in bondage to things that we should have freedom over because we are unwilling to recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. And this is where we need to grow. Michael Scanlon says it this way. He will, very soon. There it is. Uh, the fact is that many Christians do not live in the full freedom of the sons and daughters of God because many areas of their lives are in bondage to Satan. Sins, unwanted habits, physical illness, emotional wounds, psychological problems, quote, bad luck, 
disunity in relationships, problems in relating to God, fears and compulsions are just some of the ways in which Satan wages war against the children of God. This is not to imply that these problems are always or even frequently caused by demons, only that their cause may be the influence of demons. And if they are, we miss it every time. But do you see the balance here? Could be psychological, could be physical, could be emotional, could be demonic, could be all four operating together, could be a fifth thing that we haven't thought of or whatever. But the key in all this is discernment. And again, we're right back to the gifts of the Spirit. God can give discernment in different situations as to when and where there is demonic activity. In fact, one of the gifts of the Spirit that God gives in the moment is distinguishing between spirits. Meaning, wow, I really have this sense deep in my gut that there's something dark or demonic behind this. And generally speaking, we are slow to recognize this because of cultural disposition. We almost always look to explain something through materialistic or scientific terms. If someone is sick, it must be a purely physical cause, as contrasted with many Eastern philosophies in in which they are on the exact opposite end. They say, well, everything probably has a spiritual cause. So, So in the East, if you're sick, it's probably the result of an evil spirit. In the West, if you're sick, it's probably because the restaurant undercooked your food or, or whatever. And, and in reality, what we see in the scriptures is that things are layered and complex and more complex than materialism would assume. And so we need discernment and guidance in the moment. As we're praying for someone's illness, as we're praying over someone's continual lapse into sin, or whatever, we're open to the impressions and leading of the Spirit. And sometimes it's almost obvious. Some of the examples I've listed were like, oh, well, duh. And and sometimes you're just naturally pushing forward in advancing the kingdom, which is never easy but you get used to this certain pace and all of a sudden as you're doing this work to advance the kingdom, every once in a while you bump into something that pushes back. That seems to have its own kind of life and energy and power to resist. And, and as that happens, we're saying, oh, I, I have a sense of what this might be and I know what to do about it. You now know how to successfully approach and find victory over the forces of darkness. And there's no such thing in the scriptures as like a demon hunter or whatever, okay? That is not your new job title, okay? Our, your job, our job is simply to follow after Jesus and, and keep building his kingdom on earth. But as we do that, inevitably we, we are going to encounter other stuff along the way that, that we need to be aware of. When, when we meet sharp opposition or, or even crafty and subtle opposition, we are growing in our ability to discern, uh, call out, and exercise victory over the enemy. And it's not complicated. Four-year-olds can do it. Not two, but four. 
And, and, and it's not about you. It, it's actually about Jesus. It, it's his victory. And, and so even when we do successfully cast out a demon or two, Jesus says, hey, don't, don't gloat over your power over the demonic. Don't get focused on that or, or go seek that out. He says, just rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And, and that's where we land. Like, that, that's it. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us eternal life. Here's, here's one sign that Jesus actually did that work in our lives. We recognize that we are at war. And we recognize that the key to victory is prayer. In every form and in every fashion. I'm not just talking about praying against the demonic, which is which what we've been talking about this morning. I, I, I'm talking about every prayer offered up at any place and any time for any godly purpose. That advances the kingdom. That moves the hand of God. And as the light advances into the darkness, the darkness has no choice but to flee. All we've gained this morning is additional clarity on what it's advancing into and what we might encounter along the way. Would you stand with me? In Luke's account of the temptation narrative in the desert, which we read at the beginning, Jesus defeats Satan, demonstrating power over him. Satan flees, and this is the very next verse that we read. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee, straight from the desert, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. God's empowering presence, God's Ruach is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Listen to this. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he begun by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, here I am, and this is the type of stuff that I've come to do. No one who follows me need walk in darkness. No one who follows me needs sit in bondage, because I am the light of the world, and I delight in setting my children free. That's what I do. Those who the Son of Man sets free, Jesus says, are free indeed. Let's pray.